The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama MB, joined today by the wonderful Elle and Arnold. Now, this is Arnold's first episode, so we're going to get to know Arnold a little bit and then dive on into the text. Arnold, you were talking a little bit about um, the way that you developed your political tendency and your religious beliefs. Would you tell me a little bit about your tendency? Sure. I am a Marxist of the Hal Draper School of Socialism from the bottom up. For anyone who's not familiar with that, you can find his essay, Hal Draper, that's D-R-A-P-E-R, and he wrote an essay during the Berkeley Free Speech Movement uh, called The Two Souls of Socialism, and you can find it on the Marxist Internet Archive, which is also a great resource for uh, Marxist writing in general, if you're interested in that. I'm also a member of the South Carolina Workers' Party, which is a brand new leftist political party. In South Carolina, we had our first uh, convention, statewide convention, uh, in in March. Religiously, I'm currently affiliated with the Society of Friends, our Quakers, member of Columbia Friends Meeting. I'm retired. I was a teacher in prisons. So I guess that's about it. Hal Draper, The Two Souls of Socialism, is well worth your read. Draper and Murray Bookchin, I think, are sort of the two sides of leftism that I think really sort of bridge that gap between anarchism and and communism in an interesting way that I think that maybe they don't even realize that they're doing it. But (laughs) if you haven't had a chance to read Murray Bookchin or Hal Draper, definitely get on that. Okay, I've ranted enough about leftist thinkers. Let's jump right into the text. This is a little bit of a shorter reading, but it is one of the most profoundly political readings that we're going to read in these first 12 books of Genesis. The first 12 books of Genesis establish the mythos of the entire Jewish world. They they help us understand the setting of the rest of the Bible. And they are the original myths, the original stories that help orient the way that everything else works. From these stories, we'll end up going into the story of Abraham, and that becomes more specifically the people of Israel. But these first 12 chapters are how the whole world got to be the way that it is. And this story in particular is an important turning point. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. All people on the earth had one language and the same words. When they traveled east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them hard. They used bricks for stones and asphalt for mortar. They said, Come, let's build for ourselves a city, 
and a tower with its top in the sky, and let's make a name for ourselves, so that we won't be dispersed all over the earth. Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the humans built. And the Lord said, There is now one people, and they all have one language. This is what they have begun to do, and now all that they plan to do will be possible for them. Come, let's go down and mix up their language there, so they won't understand each other's language. Then the Lord dispersed them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is named Babel, because there the Lord mixed up the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over all the earth. This story, when you're first reading it, is a little bit strange. Like, all the people are working together. Why wouldn't we want to see that happen? Why is God angry at that? El and Arnold, what are y'all's perspectives here? Why is God shutting this down? So God is shutting this down because it is a fascist party. The way that I read this story and what comes to me first is this image of homogeny, which is a negative thing. If what they were doing was good, God wouldn't come down and shut it down. God is threatened by their unity uh, because this has been a pattern uh, through the earlier episodes particularly in the J source, which begins with uh, chapter 2 of Genesis, where God creates a man, then he creates animals, hoping that one of them will be a a fit partner for Adam. He doesn't want anything to do with that. So then he figures out a way to create a woman out of Adam's body. And then he tells them, you know, you can have everything except the knowledge of good and evil. But then they do that anyway, and so he expels them from the garden. So he, I, I, I think it's a, it's a contest between God and humans over whether or not humans can be independent of God. And uh, so anything that humans do to make themselves self-sufficient without God, God is threatened by that and wants to maintain his control over them. Another aspect is something that I ran across uh, re-watching the film Metropolis from 1927. It basically portrays a futuristic Babylon where the inequality of the ancient world and superimpose it on capitalism or superimpose capitalism on top of that. And in the, uh, in the myth of Babylon that's told in Metropolis, you know, of the ancient city of Babylon, the wise men say, let's build a tower to, the, to heaven. But then they realize that this is too big a project for them to do on their own. So they have to get a bunch of workers to come build the tower. But it's, it's very oppressive labor for the workers, and they don't understand the purpose of it. And so eventually, they, they rebel against the, the wise men. They destroy the tower, and the civilization falls apart, and it just lies in ruins. The moral of that story, as told in Metropolis, is that head and hands need a mediator so that they can talk to each other, and that the mediator between the head and the hands is the heart, Mm. and that that's what's missing, Mm. um, is that there's no heart to uh, capitalism. 
Now, dear listener, if you don't understand what Arnold means by the J source, uh, there is a theory of the composition of the Bible that, uh, specifically the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were made up of primarily four different sources. The J source, the E source, the P source, and the D source. And we've talked about it a couple of times, but um, the J source is the Yavist source. The Yavis source uses the Tetragrammaton primarily to talk about God, and it is a concept of God that is very anthropomorphic, that is very human-centered and focused, where God does seem to be limited. And so these sources help us to see the different ways in which God is understood in different ways by different communities. The E source is Eloist. It has a very high view of God, the idea that God is far and high and lifted up and way out there. And the D source is the Deuteronomistic source. It is one that's very concerned with the legal codes. The the P source is the priestly source. It's very concerned with religion being done in the right way. And so all of these sources have different objectives that are here in the text that are being brought about in different ways. What's useful about that theory is that it helps us recognize that there are good, different interpretations of God here in the text from the very beginning. What's not so good about that theory is that modern scholars are now in hot debates about it. And if you mention the J source, there will definitely be somebody on Reddit who goes, well, you know, actually. So anyway, I just want to give you that uh, <laughs> that little bit of a preface. And if you, dear listener, are the person uh, adjusting your glasses and going, well, actually, then please come on the podcast and tell me all the reasons that I am wrong. And, uh, and then we can go from there. One other thing that, that I noticed when I was reading the narrative and, and going into the backstory in, in Genesis is, you know, it talks about the plain of Shinar. Shinar is where Ham settled after he was, uh, he shamed his father. I don't know just how deeply into that uh, you got into the Shem, Ham, and Japheth episode, but I, I think uh, Ham molested his father while he was drunk. But the, um, you know, that's not explicitly said in the narrative, but that's always the way I've taken the story. But Ham is definitely not an honorable character. And so the fact that he is builder, his descendants are building this really marvelous civilization, I think is another thorn in God's side, so to speak. We talked about all the different ways that Ham violated Noah here, but I think that take is really interesting, especially when you have this tower in a very Freudian sense, symbolizes phallic, the height. Yes, yes exactly. It symbolizes, uh, symbolizes the domination of the master penis, right, over the rest of the world. The humanity thinks that we're capable of doing this sort of thing, right? And so we'll, we'll come back in a moment to this idea of God trying to control things. But I think that this, this theme that both Al and Arnold were talking about is really helpful here because this is, uh, how do you make bricks for stones? Well, bricks for stones are actually rather difficult to make, right? You have to have hay to be able to make good, productive bricks, which means that you suddenly have to have a whole lot of agriculture going on. Agriculture that is not focused on feeding people, but is instead focused on the production of this specific function, right? This is not something that's being used to help everyone. Instead, it is a tower being built to help the people who are able to go to the very top. And so we see this sort of unity among the people, but that unity is not something that is actually authentic. They all have the same language and the same words, so 
somebody uses that to make the bricks and to bake them hard, which means put all this labor into it, make them as, as strong as possible by forcing as many people as possible to focus on the production of the bricks rather than actually helping their fellow human being. And L, this is a theme that you talked about a lot before we started the recording. And so I want to I want to come back and make sure that we're hearing your thoughts on it. I think Franz Kafka said it best, um, if it had been possible to build the Tower of Babel without ascending it, the work would have been permitted. Mm. The notion that you have to have bricks to build this tower is also, you know, taking note of the environment that these people are living in. Stone masonry would have been how people built their houses and like regular things before. They're using bricks here, which is indicative of coerced labor and the way that a authoritarian system works is to try to get that coerced labor out of workers and the tower of babel occurs after the flood so while god has promised to never you know flood the earth again the people are clearly not trustworthy of that why else are they building a tower upward to the sky to escape waters they don't trust God. And it's also, you know, God didn't make a promise that he wouldn't send hellfire or whatever. <laughs> so there's this this animosity already building uh, between the people and God. But rather than, like, trust God, they, they put themselves more in this place of, like, well, we're adversaries almost. Well, and I think God shares part of the blame for that, too, because, you know, going back to the flood story— you know, when the flood, you know, when the waters dissipate, God puts his bow in the sky. Well, what do you use with a bow for? You shoot arrows at people. Uh, so it's kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm putting down my weapon right now, but it's still there. I can pick it up again. <laughs> yeah, and for, and for people who had never seen, you know, people lay down their weapons before to, to give up that kind of violence, it certainly makes sense that this would happen. And so you have this nationalistic urge to protect the people who can stand at the top of the tower while they are standing on top of the people below, right? Which is the same way that capitalism works today. We're seeing that the rest of us are being forced to work really, really hard so that the billionaires can afford to buy their land yachts, you know, and <laughs> and survive the great flood that is coming because they're standing on the backs of the rest of us. And just so that people don't think that L is pulling this, you know, interpretation out of nowhere, this is exactly what happens in Exodus, right? When Pharaoh forces the Israelite slaves to make bricks without being provided their straw. The people of Israel have a very intimate knowledge of how difficult it is to make bricks. And so this story is lost on us, but it would not be lost to the ancient reader who's seeing this and intimately understanding, oh, there are people who are forced to the bottom of the society because they have to be the brick makers, because they have to be the people who produce resources just for that. And so it reminds us of the modern day <laughs> equivalent, right, where tons of the Amazon are being torn down so that we can grow more wheat, so that we can feed cows, so that those cows can feed those of us in developed nations, rather than us changing our diet to be more in line with other people, right? This hay does not actually produce food that betters the world. It only produces a benefit to those of us who are privileged enough to be standing at the top of the tower. Yeah, and actually there's a difference between hay and straw. Hay is actually used for feeding animals, but it's the straw, which is the, the totally inedible part uh, that 
is only good for things like making bricks. It was a subversive critique of imperial power of the time. They would have known like exactly like bricklayer means something different than a stonemason. They got how society was set up and how pastoral societies and city life was. It's not like we're not making the exact same distinction today, right? Where we we randomly label some skills as skilled labor and some skills as unskilled labor, right? The brickmakers are the unskilled. I, I'm making big rabbit ears, right? The quote unquote unskilled labor because they were not mm-hmm. the people who had to have the same sort of technical understanding as a stonemason. If a brickmaker messes up a brick, it's one small part of a house that maybe you can fix with mortar. If a stonemason messes up your house, everybody inside the house dies. So, like, there's a slightly different (laughs) um, (laughs) margin of error there, but it's not as if the stonemason is doing tremendously harder work than the brickmaker who's out there 16 hours a day trying to make bricks, right? And it's not as though the, the CEO of McDonald's is actually doing that much harder work than the person who's working two full-time jobs and then going home and taking care of their kids. It was interesting that you mentioned McDonald's because I was just thinking about the kind of the stereotypical unskilled worker in modern American society is the person who flips your hamburgers at a fast food restaurant. And you always hear this, you know, thing like, you know, well, why would somebody who just flips hamburgers be worth any more than seven twenty five an hour? And my response to that is, do you really want the people that prepare your food to resent the fact that they can't afford the food that they're providing for you? <laughs> you know? They're 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 likely to they're likely to do some awful stuff to your food. I want the people who prepare my food to be very happy yes. you know, <laughs> Absolutely. and uh, satisfied with what they do. The people who take care of my kids, the people who, who make my food, the people who you know clean my water I, and, and pick up the trash from my neighborhood, those are the people I want to be happiest in the world. Like, where do I get off looking down on those people when they're the ones who make my life possible and healthy? If someone makes your life better, they deserve... A minimum of a living wage, if not thriving one. They deserve to own the means of production, but that's that's a whole other book. Um. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, that's why the Workers' Party is here. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. We're just going to plug the Workers' Party as often as we need to. But related to this, like this, this concept that everyone is working together, right, because they have one language and the same words, the modern version of that is that countries that have McDonald's don't go to war with each other, right? And it's just blatantly untrue. Like, you just have to look at Ukraine and Russia that are going on right now, that those are two countries that have McDonald's that are going to war together with each other, right? And so it's not as though there are cultural understandings. The bigger issue is that countries that have McDonald's tend to be ruled by the same kind of class, right? And the class solidarity between those people is stronger than the animosity between them. That's what's actually going on there. It's not that McDonald's, the Golden Arches, have some sort of magical, peaceful effect. (laughs) It's that nations that have McDonald's are similarly able to oppress the people below them. But it is interesting that those arches reach toward the sky. Yes, exactly. The Tower of Babel is topped with McDonald's arches. Um, <laughs> the common language that they spoke was, would you like fries with that? Well, I think the common language uh, of humanity now is the U.S. dollar. 
Mm-hmm. And that's about to be, that's about to come under fire. Uh, I don't know if you uh, saw Democracy Now! today, but um, China is reaching out to other countries saying, you know, do you really want the U.S. to continue calling all the shots for you? You know, and one way to get around that is to stop using the dollar as the um, the the exchange currency. You know, the the international standard. Or yeah, yeah, the international yeah. standard currency. Yeah, everything is traded in dollars. You know, so. Well, we have another Tower of Babel falling. Then <laughs> one yep. language homogenous. Yes. We just never learn. <laughs> no. Well, that's a commonality that happens so often throughout the Bible, right? Is that this is just the first example of the fall of Babylon, where it is literally Babel, the place that eventually becomes Babylon. That Babel here is the is the first empire to fall, just like Babylon will fall, just like Assyria will fall, just like Greece will fall, just like Rome will fall, just like America will fall. Empires are not inevitable. And the point of this story is that we don't even know the name of this empire. All the people on the earth, we don't have any names because it's unimportant. The most important thing about them is vaguely where they lived, a place that we no longer have any idea where it is, right? (laughs) But none of that is important. This empire is erased, but what remains is that God intervened and stopped that empire from happening. Yeah, I think what's going to be interesting, too, as we go through the Bible, you know, I don't know what order we're going to do it in once we get past the Pentateuch, but how does God come from being the jealous overlord who is afraid of humanity doing anything themselves to the one who sides with the bottom rungs of humanity and is uh, basically on the side of the poor and the workers and the slaves? against these people at the top who think they know the most about God. So we talk often on this show about process theology, right? The idea that God develops over time. And that's in contrast to the idea of a static God. So if we look at God as static, we say, we look at these stories and we see, well, God was on the side of Abel rather than Cain. God was on the side of the of the second-born brother rather than the first, because God is on the side of the underdog, right? And we see that God is on the side of Noah, some random person who... All that he did was take direct action when he needed to and built a boat, right? And we see that God takes the side of uh, of the people here in this story, right? Rather than the oppressors, God takes the side of the people at the bottom of the Tower of Babel and uses them to bring about the revolution that God wants to see. But there's also this concept of the process of God's development, that, that when God first created humanity, God didn't realize that God had made a mistake by making humanity on their own, right? And that God had to find a partner for them and couldn't find one until finally God thought about this other way. And here in this story, uh, that's why I love, Arnold, your interpretation here, that God is trying to control the situation and can't figure out the right way to do it. Because I think that we see that similar kind of story. You can make a case that God didn't know what was happening in the Garden of Eden, and so reacted to it rather than being proactive. God didn't know what was happening with Cain and Abel, reacted to it. And here, 
God doesn't seem to know what's happening in the Tower of Babel and reacts to it. So would you mind talking a little bit more about your interpretation of a jealous God here who's trying to seize control back over what's happening? Well, I think, you know, the relationship between God and humans in uh, in the earliest parts of Genesis, and I think it maybe continues through the narrative parts of the of the Pentateuch, is that God is like the stereotypical father who wants his children to obey him. And then the children, as they begin to grow and have more of an understanding and, and desire independence, they're always convinced, you know, you don't understand me. And in this case, it's really true. God does not understand the people that he has created. I know that uh, some people really get antsy when you start talking about God this way. You know, from my perspective, I'm not talking about whatever the real God is, you know, or might be. I'm talking about God as conceived in these stories. And God as conceived in these stories didn't really think this out. You know, it's, it's, you know, there were a lot of unintended consequences to what God did in the whole creation and the, the consequences of that creation. And, uh, you know, it starts out, of course, you've got the two creation stories. You've got kind of a platonic God in the first chapter of Genesis. And then you've got Martin Luther's hairy God in the, in the second chapter. And, <laughs> and then through most of Genesis, the hairy God takes over. You know, that hairy God really does not get it. He wants everything his way and cannot understand why they always rebel or they always misunderstand him, do things differently than what he told them to do. And he doesn't necessarily communicate what his expectations that well. Uh, He also winds up taking advice from them. You know, Abraham has to convince him not to kill a bunch of innocent people. You know, it just goes on and on and on. And I think that's the image of God through most of Genesis, especially. I, I just want to touch on something that I think is is something that we have sort of danced around in a lot of episodes, but I want to make really explicit here, that there is a difference between the literary character of God in these stories and the actual God that I believe exists, right? <laughs> and... Um, and And the Bible is ultimately our attempt, our best attempt as people who interact with God over the course of millennia, as as people who are attempting to cling to God, telling the story of our interactions with God and our best understanding and our best guess at who God is. And I think that the Bible can tell us a lot about that. But I also think that the Bible is telling a story about a character that is God and that that character that is God sometimes it's in conflict with the God that I understand from my own faith, right? Uh, That I don't understand the God who can commit genocide, right? I don't understand the God who can justify those things because my understanding of God is that God is love, right? And that God is, and that love is the ultimate reality of the universe. And so there, when I read the Bible story and I see the story of God committing genocide, I have to say, okay, what, is the Bible trying to tell me about this character, God, that is different from my understanding of God, and how does that influence my understanding of God? And that interplay is difficult and complicated and beautiful and strange, even when we're trying to say that 
God didn't know what was going on in this story. God is a is a parent that has raised rebellious teenagers and has no idea what to do. I I actually disagree that God didn't know that this was going on and all the other stuff too, like from Cain and Abel and everything. I think he really doesn't want to be controlling. And it's only in the very like, oh, I have to go down now and deal with this kind of like, it's that bad that he has to come in and like put a stop to certain things. I was reading in some Jewish short sources that like people got trials back in the day and judgment wasn't handed down until like things were checked out. So like God coming down each and every time is him like actually doing a judgment, like are things bad enough for me to actually step in? Because I really do think God like wanted, you know, the unintended consequences of how he made us. He has to step in sometimes when we start going the wrong way. And putting ourselves on this edifice is one of the ways that we're kind of leading into idolatry and like self-worship instead of like focusing on the group or the community. Because it's all about like those guys who made that tower. They said, come, let us make bricks and bake them hard, right? Where like we are joining in God's creation, but rather than, you know, going out and making new beautiful things, we're going to make God's creation by building a tower that's high enough that we can go up there, kill God and take over, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's the sort of underlying part of the story. And part of the reason that I love this interpretation, that this is on purpose, is that God told the people, go out, be fruitful and multiply, go all over the earth. And instead, what they chose to do is come into one place where they could hold on to power, where they could, you know, have this illusion of safety. Whereas God wanted diversity. God wanted people to be all over the place. God wanted them to develop different language and different words and different understandings of the world. And here, in this story, they want to hold on to it. They want to tamper down on anything that's different to ensure their power continues to be present, right? It's not like we see any parallels in our modern society where we're seeing a number of new gender identities coming out that people in power don't understand and want to clamp down on because suddenly they lose power when those binaries and those systems no longer hold up, right? There's no, there's no possible parallels. It's also not that they lose power, but like the very, their very like belief system and identity system is put under threat. Yeah. You know, and this also brings up another thing that I hadn't uh, thought about before is that uh, people of faith generally like to think of, of God being active in the world. But in this story, God is mostly reactive, where, you know, it starts out, and this is the uh, parallelism that we were talking about. I don't know if we talked about it after we started recording or not, but you know, it starts out, the whole earth had one language, and then the humans say to each other, let's make bricks, build a city. And that's when God notices what's going on and starts reacting. Oh, they built a city? God sees the city that mortals have built this. Oh, well, they had one language. They communicated to one another. Let's go down and confuse what they're saying so that they can't understand each other. And then he confused the language, and that's the end of the story. It started out, they had one language, or the story ends. They can't understand each other because they don't 
all speak the same language. And so again, you know, it's uh, in this story, it seems, you know, God is not active, he's reactive. Dear listener, what might be confusing to you is that what Arnold has just described is an ancient form of chiasm. Now, a chiasm is a complicated way of saying that basically every part of the story has a parallel with another side of it, and they sort of build together and then move apart from each other. It's confusing to explain in an audio format, but the, the they're sort of pairs that are separated by different distances in the story, and the closer to the middle of the story you get, the closer those pairs get, right? Well, it's kind of like an outline format that you learned in English class. You know, you've got yeah. uh, you've got your headings one, two, three, and then the ABC under the one, two, and three, and then you've got the Roman numeral, the little lowercase lo- Roman numeral one, two, threes under the ABCs, and it just keeps going down and down and down, but then it has to back out. You know, every time you go in, you have to back back out to get to the... Uh, the main part, the outline, and so it's it's basically an outline form, yeah, uh, that keeps going in until it backs back out. And this is the way that a lot of ancient Jewish stories are told, in part because it's easier to remember. If the first thing you do is the whole earth had one language, and the last thing you do is that God confused the language, right? And then you remember, well, the second thing that you do is the humans said to one another, and the second to last thing is God saying they will not understand each other. You see these parallels that make the story easier to tell, which is a suggestion that this is a pretty old oral story that finds its way into the text. But these sort of chiasms are all over the place, especially in Hebrew poetry. The way that Hebrew rhymes is not by having words that sound the same at the end of the word. That's a very English kind of form of rhyming that is not unique to our culture, but that is very European. But in this Semitic language, the way that you rhyme is you have similar ideas that either build on each other or contrast each other. If you read through the Psalms, you see this all the time, where you say, oh, praise be to Almighty God, the the King of heaven and earth, right? Where it is building on that previous idea. Or you see in one verse, my enemies surround me, but God is my refuge where there's contrast between those two things. And here, that contrast is really evident to see the way that humans are acting and in contrast, the way that God is acting. Humans are building up the system of oppression, and God is ultimately liberating us from that. Yeah, one of my favorite examples of that, you know, parallelism uh, in Hebrew poetry is in Proverbs, the verse that said, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit goes before a fall. So, they just say the same thing twice in different words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's parallelism in Hebrew poetry. And speaking of parallelism, uh, one of the things that is so important here in this story to understand that, that we're just not going to understand this story if we don't get is that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, there was an idea that if you knew the name of a god, you had power over them. And so the reason that in the Ten Commandments it says you shall not use the Lord's name in vain is not that God is going to get angry with you if you drop a hammer and it falls on your foot and you say Jesus Christ, right? That is not the point. (laughs) The point is the fact that in these ancient cultures, if you knew the name of a God, you could use that to invoke them to do things for you, right? It's It's an ancient form of magic that if you control, you have this sort of magic spell word that you can use to control the other person. And so that is why you're not supposed to use the name in vain. Well, what is the modern equivalent of that? 
It's politicians who use God's name to have power over other people. And here in this story, that's exactly what they're going for. They're not interested in just building a great tower. They're interested in building a tower so that they can make a name for themselves so that they wouldn't be dispersed on the earth. It is specifically to resist God. It is to have a power over God that God is not able to make them do the thing that God told them to do in the first place. And so this power over God is really the issue here. It's not that people are working together. (laughs) It's not that people are not supposed to build things. It's that people are doing this explicitly with the intention of having power over God and ultimately having power over their fellow human that is destructive in the end. Anytime I have a discussion like this, you know, it always brings up things that I've never really uh, focused on before, you know, talk about, you know, that, I, I mean, I've heard that concept that the, that the name is a key to the nature of an individual, and whether it's a human or a god, you know, that it's, uh, you know, the name reveals the nature. I, I think it's in Jeremiah, and maybe it occurs more than once in the prophets, but it says, you know, I knew you before you were conceived, you know, I knew your name. And so, that's a very important concept in the scriptures. I didn't look that deeply into who Rabbi Phineas is. There was a quote from him about the Tower of Babel. There were no stones there wherewith to build the city and the tower. What did they do? They baked bricks and burnt them like a builder would do until they built it seven mils high, and it had ascents on its east and west. The laborers who took up the bricks went up the eastern ascent, and those who descended went down on the western descent. If a man fell and died, they paid no heed to him. But if a brick fell, they sat down and wept and said, Woe is us, when will another come in instead? And I just like that piece because uh, it really flavors how I view the story of the Tower of Babel because it, it does make it clearly about these authoritarians enslaving their fellow man, building up a tower to glorify themselves as opposed to God. And it really is kind of like the first form of idolatry in the Bible, this like building up of the self. If you look at the text, there's there's not really much of a polytheistic world in the earlier parts of the Bible. And after this, we lead into all sorts of different types of idolatry that happens. But the first one is the idolatry of self and like above God. Yeah, and that's the, uh, something that's in the um, the metropolis telling of the story is when they conceive this tower, they say, you know, and, and on the top of it, we'll put great is the creator and great is man. And so, yeah, they, they, they're putting themselves on the same level with the creator. You know, we all lived through capitalists arguing, well, we should just figure out how many people it's okay to die uh, to be able to maintain the economy, right? Like, we all... I mean, we're we're still living through it. Absolutely. You know, like, with the crumbling infrastructure, bird flu maybe happening, uh, Marburg disease, you know, it could... We're still living through, like, well, how many people will we let die? A lot, a lot. There's money in death. They'll let a lot of people die. (laughs) And that's absolutely nothing new. I know that, uh, I don't know how old you are, Micah, but uh, I remember 
uh, when Ford Motor Company was uh, prosecuted for murder, basically, uh, mass murder, when they decided to market a subcompact car, the Ford Pinto, yeah. The engineer, they, they said that it has to have a sticker price of under $2,000. And the engineers studied it, and they said, well, the only way to give it a sticker price of under $2,000 is to make it so short that there's going to be a nut, a bolt, right up against the gas tank. And if somebody hits that car in the rear end, it's going to puncture the gas tank, the car's going to burst into flames, and the people inside are going to die. And so then they said, well, how many people are going to die? Well, it's this many people. And how much is that going to cost us in lawsuits, wrongful death lawsuits? They said, well, it's going to cost us this much. Oh, okay, it's worth it. And so uh, capitalism does that all the time. Empire does that all the time. How many people can we afford to lose? Every time we go to war, you know? Well, they're only 19, you know? Fascists do it all the time. Authoritarians do it all the time. It's the same calculation that caused the famine in India, that caused the famine in Ireland, that causes world hunger today. It's the same logic that causes the vaccine to be uh, patented rather than available to everyone throughout the world freely, even though it helps all of us, right? It's the same calculation that the rich are making today about climate change. How many poor people can we afford to just kill in order to maintain our lifestyles? And I hate to say this, but the reality is that this moment in time is the best time for us to be forming workers' parties and unions because they killed off enough of us that their pool of excess labor has dropped dramatically enough that we can actually make demands, right? And that was the miscalculation that the rich made. Well, it's it's funny because they historically make that same mistake, Because it happened during the Black Death. That's kind of the end of, like, one sort of peasantry. It's it's happened during every single pandemic and war for a little while. When the power shifts just a little bit, if we keep organizing and keep supporting each other's needs, you can't organize without good supply lines. Mm -hmm. You know, the more we do those things, like, we'll be able to make it out of a capitalistic hellscape while rebuilding a new society, like while it's crumbling down around us. I was just going to say a personal myth that I carry with me about power and evil is that evil always overplays its hand. It happened, as L pointed out, with the Black Death. It happened with the Third Reich. It happened with the United States in Vietnam. And there's a great story by Edgar Allan Poe called The Mask of the Red Death. And it's, to me, it is an allegory, a morality tale about how the people in power cannot isolate themselves from the misery they create for the people below them. That, you know, when they, when they create and allow misery to go on, that misery will, will eventually reach up to them and destroy them along with everybody else. But they don't ever understand that. The capitalists think that somehow they're going to escape the mass extinction event that they're causing, right? And think that somehow they will be the special ones. Either that or think they should live in absurdist value until then, right? But we know, or at least we hope, that God is coming to tear down these towers and is coming to do it for us and with us.
Well, thank you all so much for being a part of this conversation. I so appreciate you taking your time to come and be a part of this. And I look forward to many more of these conversations with y'all. And thank you, dear listener, for being a part of this community, for jumping in. We are growing leaps and bounds and bringing new people on all the time. I so appreciate each and every one of you who are coming and being a part of our Discord community. Now, past Micah, tell them all of our pluggables. If you're interested in discussing this episode, religion, or general leftism, please join our Discord channel found in the show notes. We host a Bible study every Friday at 12-ish p.m. Eastern Time to discuss this week's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash the word in black and red. Your support helps me pay our amazing editor and relieves my guilty conscience of exploiting someone's free labor. If you would like to appear on the show or reach us for any reason, you can reach us at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now, friend, let us go and tear down the tower together. Shalom. Now, 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 now.